about Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Mays, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Tim Camisa, and he'll be answering your questions on traveling to new destinations to fish. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask him a question, go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form in the right column uh, of our website. Just fill in your name and your email address there, and we'll keep you informed. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Feedspot, Player FM, or any of the other platforms you might be using. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the distribution platforms and your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now while you're listening. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. Doing Businesses Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Tim Camisa about traveling to new destinations to fish. Looking at that shot at a permit, Whipray Key Fishing Lodge in Belize is where you want to be. When you stay at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest permit fishing in Belize. Whipray Key is just a 30-minute boat ride from Placencia. Once you're there, you'll be fishing Permit Alley, one of Belize's best fisheries, and you won't be taking long boat rides to get started. You'll fish with world-class guides like Daniel Cabral, whose family has fished the area for over 30 years. Want to switch it up and fish for tarpon and bonefish and make it a grand slam? They can make it happen at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge. Book your next adventure now. Visit WhipRayKeyFishingLodge.com. That's WhipRayKeyFishingLodge.com. Before we introduce Tim, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. On our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage and ask about flyfishing.com and look for the link under Tim's section that says, click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a book, courtesy of Stackpole Books. So I've got a long list of titles from Stackpole that I'll, I'll send out to whoever wins this, and you'll get to pick which book you want to you have sent to you. So here's how you can win one of Stackpole's books. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show, or it could be a two-part question. You never know. And it's going to be something that Tim and I talk about during the show. And you're going to submit your answer along with your name and location, using that text box on our home page. It's the same text box that you can use during the show to, to send in questions. So that's where you'll submit it once we ask the question. The first person that has the right answer will uh, win a book from Stackpole Books. And if you want to learn more about what Stackpole has to offer, go to stackpolebooks.com. They have tons and tons of uh, books on fly fishing uh, and fishing. So check them out, uh, one of the greatest publishers out there of fly fishing books. Our guest tonight is Tim Camisa. Tim of Trout and Feather has been addicted to fly fishing and fly tying for about as long as anyone can remember. 
Although he and his wife, Heather, live in western Pennsylvania, fly fishing has taken him all over the country with his fly fishing home base being State College area. Some of Tim's favorite waters include the mighty Delaware, where he is guided, and Missouri rivers. Though discovering small streams with wild trout continues to excite him, his four-year-old son, Angelo, especially likes this as he gets to be a fish spotter. In 2019, Tim's fly fishing included destinations in Wyoming, Florida, New York, and Iceland, with him hosting a trip to the latter this upcoming summer for Ice Age brown trout and gorgeous Arctic char. Tim is one of the new generations of fly fishers who have taken us to social media to promote and teach the sport. A fly fisherman and fly tire for over 30 years, Tim has started making fly tying tutorials and posting them on YouTube, which permits users to upload their own homemade videos on just about any topic. Tim and his coffee mug have uh, co-starred in over 250 videos on many different fly fishing and tying topics, like purchasing and maintaining gear, tying with certain materials or a specific fly pattern, and giving back to charities such as Project Healing Waters. Tim has had a great response to his videos, and he now has an audience of over 20,000 subscribers with 3 million video views. You can view Tim's fly tying and fly fishing videos on his website, www.troutandfeather.com. Again, that's troutandfeather.com. Hey, Tim, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Well, thanks, Roger. It's great to be here, and I really appreciate everything. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's great to uh, connect. <laughs> it's kind of a funny Finally. story. Uh, um, at the fly fishing show in Denver, I went up to Tim's uh, fly tying area, and uh, I had been watching Tim's videos on fly tying for quite a while. <laughs> Never talked to him, so I approached him, and he goes, I know who you are. <laughs> and I go, really? And he, I said, well, I know who you are, too, because I've been watching your videos. <laughs> so uh, we connected uh, real quickly there and decided to uh, get together and, and do a podcast here and, uh, uh, and yeah. uh, share and some I'll of Tim's you. great knowledge. So. Well, that connection went really well. And first of all, before we get into this, you run just an extremely professional you know, podcast and fly fishing show on, on the Internet. So thank you for what you do. And then for all the listeners out there who have not had a chance to run into you, it's just a very surreal kind of moment because I'm sitting there, I'm tying flies, I'm talking to a few other people, and I hear Roger's voice. And I immediately know, <laughs> oh, my gosh, like I felt like somebody was just playing your show somewhere. And I looked up, and I was like, I don't know what you look like necessarily, but I know it's Roger Mays. Here we go. That's funny, the voice. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've heard that before. The, uh, I, I, oh, I know. It, what, what happened was uh, um, I was playing uh, – I played pickleball. Okay, a lot of you may not okay. know what pickleball is, but I played yeah. pickleball. So I'm at the pickleball courts playing, and I'm sitting there, and I'm talking, and – this guy turns his head to me uh, that I didn't know, and he goes, I know your voice. <laughs> I go, really? <laughs> I go, I, I, and then we, we connect, and I tell him what I did, and he goes, that's it. I've been listening to your show. So uh, that, that's, oh, that's, uh, that's another so story with the voice, yeah. So anyway, oh, yeah. we tell all kinds of, we'll, we'll save those stories for the end. We'll get into the other <laughs> stuff first. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, so so we came up with um topic tonight a, a bit different than normal, so um, uh, Tim's been doing some traveling, and uh, he does a a lot of fly tying, as we said, with his videos and so forth, so we thought we'd explore, you know, what he's discovered and learned in traveling and fly tying and taking things on the road, both techniques and and, and his tying skills and so forth, so that's what we're going to explore tonight, because a lot of us go to different places to fish, and somewhat, we're, we're probably somewhat intimidated at times when we go, so let's 
try to see if we can smooth some of that out for you folks tonight. So, um, so let's just start off, uh, Tim, talking about planning. Um, once you've decided on a destination, how, how do you begin to start planning for a trip? Yeah, you got it. And, and I think that's a great question because, uh, and, and before we jump into all this, I'll kind of focus around a trout as a species because once we start to bring in other fish such as, you know, saltwater species or pike, muskie and all that stuff, I, I think there's a bunch of other nuances. So I'll kind of, I'll try to speak specifically to trout, but I'll also give some generalizations that we can kind of pull in for some other species if we're, if we're on the hunt for them. So whenever sure. I think about that, that destination, um, the first thing I'm really thinking about before I begin that journey is what time of year is the best time of year to go? Because if I know I'm going to be heading to Montana or to Wyoming or to Alaska versus somewhere like Iceland or, or maybe south of the equator to chase trout, the time of year really can, it can impact things. And if you, you call a lot of fly shops or if you call guides, sometimes they'll just tell you, listen, you should be out here any time of the year. But in reality, there are times of the year that you can kind of put yourself in a position to, to have more success. So that's probably the first thing I'm going to start with. And I'm just going to say, what am I going after? Is it, am I going after an experience? Am I trying to do dry fly fishing? Am I trying to fish streamers? And I'm, I'm going to try to plan it around that in weather that I kind of find comfortable. I mean, if we know we're going to be doing a trip in the winter, it's a winter trip and you kind of know what you're going to get out of it. Versus if, and I'm a teacher, I, I teach sixth grade elementary school, and as a teacher, I have my summers off. So more than likely, I'm going to be fishing a lot in July, and, and July is not what I would call historically a great season for trout or a time of the year. So if I'm thinking about going, you know, on a, on a fishing trip, for, you know, fly fishing for trout in July, I'm probably going to be looking for, you know, places further north if I can or tailwaters that I know are going to have colder water year-round. So that time of year is really going to dictate a lot of stuff for me. Does that kind of make sense to start things out? Sure, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like we talked about before the show, my experience is full of not uh, going at the right time. So, uh, yeah, yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Well, then I'll just jump into kind of like once I've decided on that time of year that, you know, I'm, I'm going to dive into. Years ago, I think probably the easy thing for me to do, I would, you know, maybe see if there was a book or something as a resource out there on that destination to kind of go down that realm. But in reality, a lot of the, you know, there's not a lot of current books coming out. There still definitely are a number of them. There's no question about it. And there's some really great resources out there. But probably the first thing I'm, that I'm going to do once I've decided on a destination, I'm going to first see, are there fly shops in the area? And if there are, I'm going to immediately go onto their website because most of the major fly shops are those that, you know, really kind of are, are in tune with the game in those locations are going to have things like a hatch chart. They're going to have, you know, a seasons page where they're going to talk about what you can experience throughout different seasons of the year. Or if nothing else, they're going to have a phone number or an email address where you can shoot them a quick email and just say, hey, listen, I have the next six months, you know, to possibly travel, but I'm thinking about these couple of months. What would you recommend? And if I come down there at that time of the year, what kind of fishing should I expect? And I, I think every, you know, before you get into this type of a travel or, or that type of a destination, you know you're taking a fishing trip. And, you know, that you want to put yourself in that, that best position for success. So you know it's, it's not going to necessarily always be 100% of that, but it will at least give you kind of that guideline to say, all right, well, I've contacted this fly shop. They're saying that this is a really good window to go to versus if I would have came a month earlier, something maybe devastating could have happened. And, and I know you, you know you and I had kind of talked about your experience in Montana. Well, last year in April, I was um, in Wyoming, and we had a, an opportunity to fish the North Platte River. And it's it, just a wonderful resource, just a, a great fishery. 
But there's about a two-week period on the North Platte where they flush the entire river. So for two weeks, that river is pretty much blown out. And if you hadn't talked to anybody to know that that was going to go on and that's a planned thing, that's your entire trip. It could just be, you know, down the drain without doing a little bit of research. So that's probably the first thing I'm going to find out is if I come this time of the year, what can I expect? Is there anything going on that, that you know of that takes place historically? So the fly shop is going to be, you know, one of those first areas that I'm going to dig into. And then something else that I like to do is, you know, I really, if I'm going to be traveling and I have an opportunity to, to have a guide, I'm probably going to reach out to a couple guides in the area just to at least get an idea for their perspective as well. Because if you can find a guide that, that does this full time versus, you know, sometimes you have guides that are more weekend warriors, which are great, but if you find someone that does this full time, number one, they acknowledge that they're a resource in that area, and they're going to help point you in the right direction. And sometimes they're just happy to contact you because they know once they've made contact, maybe you get out there, they have a free day. You may have told them up front, I'm not sure if I'm going to get a guide, and they understand that. But maybe you get there, decide that you didn't think you needed a guide, but needed one. Now they know, hey, you have their number. If there's an opportunity to connect, that could happen as well. So you know, don't, be, don't hesitate to call guides. I think years ago I was probably a little bit more nervous to do so, but then I became a guide for a couple seasons. And I realized, you know, I am on the water all the time. And, you know, that's part of our job is to really help everybody else out there. Now, if you call and you start, you know, asking what size fly, you know, what's the, how many, you know, what's the, what color hackle should I have on it? You know, which pool should I be fishing? Which riffle should I be on? You know, I'm not going to give you every single thing there, but I'm, I'm definitely going to give you some general generalizations that are going to help kind of get you in the game and, and have a little bit more success when you're there. So that would yeah, probably be that kind of that, yeah, that secondary resource for me. Yeah, the um, and many times, you know, I will go with a, a guide, even if it's just for one day, first day to get there, just sure. to get the lay of the land, especially if it's a, a river I haven't fished or, you know, I've never been there before, and that's it's, it's always helpful um, to do that. Um, the other place you can go to research places is ask about fly fishing. <laughs> we have shows on a lot of fisheries. Nice. So Go to the archive okay. and type in the fishery you're going to go to, and uh, and you may have all 90 minutes of uh, free information on it. So uh, so check that out too. So so where else do you go, Tim, to to do research? Yeah, and, and let's jump down that notion of a, a Google search too. I mean, let's we'll do the product placement for Ask About Fly Fishing. That's a, that's a great resource, and I've listened to <laughs> the majority of your shows. They're excellent. So I'll, I'll say that. Um, be careful about doing just a straight Google search because what I've realized with some of that stuff. It's very difficult when you have websites because you don't necessarily have somebody that's vetting that information. Or a lot of the websites that are out there haven't been updated in X amount of years. So kind of be cautious about that versus going to a website that, that's more reputable, maybe a, a bigger name in fly fishing, something along those lines. So that's kind of, you know, I, I don't want to tell people don't Google, but by all means, absolutely, go on the Internet, internet do some searches, and, and see what you can dig up about it. But at the end of the day, try to find people specifically in that area and that would probably be my third tip, and it's the notion of using social media to kind of, you know, have some more success whenever you're planning a trip, um, just for some of that really down and dirty information. And by social media, probably the, the two, you know, kind of quick pieces of advice that I can give your listeners, um, it would be through Facebook and through Instagram. Um, through Facebook, there are some wonderful tools there, and there are these things that are called Facebook groups. And there's all kinds of groups that... It's basically imagine it as like a page of people, or if you think about some forums that used to be online, imagine kind of a forum within Facebook. And within these forums or these Facebook groups, you have a bunch of people that are kind of connecting over some type of common topic. 
I think they even had a commercial for Facebook groups during the Super Bowl recently, which I got a kick out of because I'd never seen a commercial for them before. So, you know, Facebook is obviously pushing that. Well, there's a lot of fly time groups. There's a lot of fly fishing groups. But then there are also very specific groups for different regions of the country related to fly fishing. I know whenever um, my buddy Rob Giannino of the Fly Fishing Journeys podcast, he and I kind of got together to do some uh, king salmon fishing, some steelhead fishing, and some brown trout fishing in the fall in New York. And I went on the Facebook. I found a Facebook group that really just concentrated on the Lake Ontario tributaries of New York. And it wasn't just fly fishing. So you had you know a, an assortment of people in there. But it was really easy for me to become a member of the group. You basically asked for permission, and they just ver they wanted to verify that you weren't just a robot or, or something you know related to spam. And once you're within the group, you can kind of just read some of the posts that are in there, or you can just make your own posts. And that's what I did. I just said, hey, my friend and I are thinking about coming up, you know, this time of year. Um, any suggestions you have for us? Anything that you know we can expect? And yeah, every now and then you might get some comments that you know people may not want to give you a lot of information, but you would really be surprised by how many people you know just just want you to have success and want you to enjoy your experience when you're there. So that's yeah. In fact, uh, yeah, I was uh, uh, I'm on a lot of Facebook groups, but I, I just happened to bring one up today, and a a guy mm -hmm. had um, he asked uh, what is and this is this is a way to find out. Just ask the question out there of what you want to yeah. find out. You know, he was asking about uh, fishing mice. You know, and and I so I helped him out. I said, hey, I just did a show on that, a podcast. Go listen. I get uh, ninety minutes of mouse and yeah. mice and uh, men, and uh, um, and and so all you have to do is ask. And and what I found too, yeah, is, is most fly fishers are, are pretty giving people and uh, don't mind sharing, you know, what they know and uh, be happy to help yeah. you out. In fact, sometimes we uh, <laughs> we end up giving our opinions. More readily than some people <laughs> like, too. <laughs> probably. Yes, yeah, probably. Yeah. Well, we have uh, Tom Berry in Ohio asked, uh, he wrote in and said, uh, when you are traveling to a destination by air or a location that you've never been to, either in the U.S. or outside, uh, where do you go uh, to research what gear and flies are needed and what is excess? And, and then he added this additional note. He says, what I'm referencing is traveling by air and staying within weight limits. As I've traveled to New Zealand and out west, I live in Ohio, and in about three weeks he's headed for Belize, uh, his first saltwater trip. Um, so, um, so that's that's always a question. I'm going to know we're going to dig into some of this detail later, but uh, packing to an excess is always kind of a, a challenge <laughs> to avoid, right? Absolutely. Yes, big time. What uh, yeah, What a, are your thoughts on? controlling your uh, your gear load when you're when you're traveling you know what that's a really that's a great point that, that Tom brings up and you know thanks Tom for the question because um, organization is without a doubt when you're traveling that's one of the biggest keys and, and I'm one of the, the people that I will pack and look at my bags and unpack and repack and kind of go back and forth and I'll say to myself do I need this many pairs of pants or do I need this many fly rods while I'm there so I don't have necessarily a set answer to you know for Tom. I can tell you that whenever I traveled to Iceland this year, I had an opportunity to fly fish over in Iceland for the, in August. And whenever I was getting ready for that trip, we went with a, an outfitter over there, and it, it was great because this outfitter basically sent us a list of everything that we needed and also everything they had there. And so because we had a kind of guide set up for that, it was kind of nice because it took a little bit of the pressure off of us because we didn't need to bring everything that you would want to have if I was, you know, driving around Pennsylvania. 
So that was kind of nice if, if you have that opportunity. Um, from my perspective, kind of the biggest tip that I've used over the years, on my iPhone, I use the notes feature all the time. And I'm constantly, I'm, I'm the person, I just love to have just notes and things organized so I can kind of refer to them in, in the future. I always tell people I have a terrible memory. And I think that's a lie. It's probably just an excuse to, you know, not have to remember as much stuff. But using the notes section on my iPhone has been really critical for, for taking trips because I have a couple pages in there. I have a page that's called fly tying show. So anytime I'm traveling to a fly tying show, I have everything listed in there that I think is critical. And I have a page that's very similar for whenever I'm taking a fly fishing trip that in, you know, relates to flying. And through there, I have every what I call my essential kind of pieces of gear that are ready to go. And just those little things that when you're you know, arriving at the airport or once your flight's landed, you think to yourself, oh, I forgot that one thing that I always forget. And that's when I immediately will go into my phone and just add it to my notes section so I won't forget it the next time. So to, that's a terrible kind of way to answer Tom's question, but I know that from traveling you know, X amount of times in the last five or 10 years, it's been great because I can kind of build on each experience and just kind of make sure my next experience is better than the prior one, or at least I'm a little bit more organized. Whenever it comes to, I think he asked, you know, where do I go to research? That will kind of go back to the fly shops, to the guides. Um, another piece of social media that we, ne we didn't necessarily investigate is versus just asking a generalized question to a group is to kind of seek out individuals in that area that fish that area. Through Instagram, you can actually kind of locate people through hashtags, and you can put a hashtag related to a destination like hashtag North Platte River. And then whenever you search for that hashtag, you'll see people who may have been fishing the North Platte River over the last week. And so it's, you know they've been on the water. And you can instantly reach out to them and send them something called a DM or a direct message and ask them, like, hey, what kind of rods do you think I should have if I'm coming out in two weeks or even in a week? What lines you know, should I expect to have? You know, what lines would I need in you know, a worst-case scenario as well? And that's probably that final piece that I would give Tom. If I'm traveling somewhere and I, I think I'm going to be doing some dry fly fishing, I'm probably still going to have just some backup gear in case, you know, you have some type of rain event. And maybe I'll have to fish some streamers. Or maybe I'll throw in a Euronymph rod because that's kind of that current rabbit hole that I've been chasing down. So I don't have a specific, you know, spot where I'll tell him, like, hey, this is what you need for every trip. But my biggest suggestion is once you've taken a trip, write down everything that you brought, write down what, you know, you kind of had success with, and then try to build on that for your next trip. Yeah, and there are... There are some books like I, um, um, uh, Jim Klug, Jim Klug wrote a, a really nice kind of coffee table book on Belize, and um, okay. he had pages of flies in there, you know, lines, other gear, and so forth. And I think it was maybe in his in his book that two things that I always throw in my bag um, is a, a small roll of duct tape and some uh, uh, hmm. super glue. <laughs> because right. and and those are things I take with me like backpacking and car camping too. Um, yeah. So yeah. it's um, you never you know and they they can repair a lot of things and uh, cure a lot of uh, situations. The other thing I ran into this I don't know if I've told this story but this summer this, yeah. this September when we did this road trip up through Wyoming and, and Montana, the first day we got up there to put the boat in on the North Platte. By the way. Uh, I yep. get the boat back down to the river. I go. I try to unlock the boat from the trailer, and uh, the uh, the lock is seized up. I can't get the oh, lock no. off. <laughs> and I didn't have any WD-40 or any kind of lubricant or mm. anything in the truck. And uh, 
So we had to pull out, pull back, go back to one of the guide shops there and ask anybody have any WD-40 or anything. And they, somebody did. We were able to get the lock undone, and then we went back to put in and put the boat back in. Oh, kind of an embarrassing yeah. story, but you you know you don't think of it, you know. So so now guess what's in the back of the truck? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, that's yeah. one of those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah some so. of the little things. That I like to have like a waiter repair kit. You know, there's some really easy to use ones now. So I like to have something like that that could double because um, sometimes we use, you know, boats such as like, you know, Scaddens or Watermaster. So it's nice if you have kind of a boat repair kit that you can, you can double up and use on your waders or on something else, some other type of gear that, you know, that breaks down. And I love to have some type of a, like a water filtration system just to know that, you know, I'll always have water depending on, you know, wherever I am and I'll feel comfortable or safe drinking it. And there's some really reasonably priced ones that you can buy that are just, they're very lightweight and you can just throw them in your fly vest, and you know if something happens, you know, you have access to clean water. Yeah, yeah. Well, we need to take a quick break here, Tim, uh, so hang tight. We'll be right back. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams. And just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience and coaching. A vacation with Baja Fly Fishing is more than just a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling, while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well-versed in uh, fly fishing the beach and kayaks on pongas. They're well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, Jack Creval, Yellowfin, uh, Skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at www.bajaflyfish.com. Again, that's bajaflyfish.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Tim Conisa about traveling and uh, taking your, your fishing with you. So if you'd like to ask Tim a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer it on the show tonight. So, Tim, um, we had some other questions. Oh, first of all, tell me what's going on in your fly fishing world. I know you're doing some of the shows, the fly fishing shows around the country, so uh, fill people in on, on your, your travels. Yeah, I'd be happy to. It's, it's been a, a busy winter so far. I mean, in terms of the fly fishing show season, that kind of kicks off for me in November with the International Fly Tying Symposium. That's a show that takes place in New Jersey. It's run by my friend Chuck Frimsky. Um, and being that I'm a, considered a, you know, a YouTube fly tire, that's like kind of one of my favorite shows to, to go to. So I, I kind of start that off in November. December, for the most part, I have a couple little shows that I'll do, maybe local shows in the Pittsburgh area. It's kind of tricky to travel, you know, especially in the wintertime. As I mentioned, I'm a, I'm a school teacher, so it's, you know, it's kind of tough to take off to, to do a ton of shows. But starting in January, uh, I'm very fortunate. I kind of have a full schedule um, with the, the weekends and my availability. Um, this year I, I did the Denver Fly Fishing Show. Um, I'll be doing the Edison Fly Fishing Show. I actually just completed the Edison Fly Fishing Show. And then in terms of some of the smaller ones, um, there's a few in the Pittsburgh area that I'm doing. I'm traveling this year to Indianapolis to, to meet with a group over there. Um, I have another show set up in Ohio. So kind of all that kind of fun stuff going on in regards to tying and you know, sharing fly fishing techniques and presentations with people. Uh, so it's really fun to get out and do a lot of these speaking engagements around the country. June is always like my busiest month because most of the groups know that 
once my, you know, my teaching season ends, they can kind of book me as a speaker. But then a lot of the, the fly fishing groups tend to kind of just kind of call a timeout during the summertime to really concentrate on fishing. So once June is over, then, you know, most of these groups aren't going to meet again until the fall. So June is always kind of my most hectic month to, to get a couple presentations in. Plus, the fly fishing is always just, you know, tends to be phenomenal in June. So I don't like to overbook that. And then aside from all the, you know, the fly fishing show stuff, um, my YouTube channel, you know, it's been really successful over the last few years. So, I, you know, I try to stay current and relevant with that. And I've been pushing a lot of guest tires and, you know, just kind of guest hosts over the last couple of years. So whenever I'm traveling to these, these other destinations like Wyoming or Iceland, you know, I, I try to take opportunities while I'm there, an hour here, an hour there. I bring my camera gear and some recording equipment, and I'll record people over there. Or I'll tie a fly while I'm fishing there that I've had success with. Then once I get back, you know, I'll, I'll edit a video related to that. So, for instance, with Iceland, I'll be, you know, coming out with a video in the next couple of weeks that we recorded pretty much 95% of it over there, which was really cool. We caught some just incredible fish, and then I'll be able to kind of share my experiences on YouTube. And the editing is just, that's kind of the beast, and that's kind of the, the, the dirty little secret whenever it comes to these free YouTube videos, which are just a terrible business plan, by the way, to give away a free video. So, <laughs> you know, you have, you know, recording them is great, and it's a blast making them, and I, I really have a lot of fun. But once you learn a little bit more about editing, and kind of like, you know, I was talking about packing and, you know, preparing for a trip, once you realize what mistakes you've made in the past, you know, I try really hard not to make those same mistakes in the future. So my, my, my videos over the last couple of years have really progressed, but I now know, you know, what I didn't know back then. And once you've learned that, you, I, I just want to make sure they're, they're getting better with each one, which means just a little bit more time with each one. So for anyone out there that, you know, that is subscribed to my YouTube videos, thanks for kind of sticking with me because I don't release them as much as I used to, but, you know, I have a child now and the, the exciting news, my wife is pregnant and she's, uh, we're having a little girl that's due in June. So, you know, that's going to kind of, you know, prohibit these videos just a tad more. So we've got the videos going right now in between the shows. And the kind of the, the last thing that I'll kind of announce is that I have a, a contract for a book on fly time. So I'm really excited to wrap that up. I'm just kind of nearing the, the final stages of that. So I won't tell a ton about that. You know, if you're, if you, if I do a decent job, if you're willing to have me on again, I'll talk about that. Oh, sure. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Love to do that. Yeah. The, um, well, that's great. Now, how, how do people find you on YouTube? What's the easiest way to find your channel? Um, probably the easiest way is, you know, either go to the Trout and Feather website, then you can watch the videos through there. Or if they're looking for me on YouTube, they can, they can type my YouTube channel name, which is TC Trout. So it's just basically YouTube.com slash TC Trout, and all my videos will come up. You can also do a search for me just for Tim Camisa fly fishing or fly tying, and then you should be able to find my channel that way. Okay, and I, I think what we'll do is uh, after we finish up tonight, I'll put a link to, to your channels and stuff on your website, uh, on our site, cool, so people can find it there on your, your speaker's page. So uh, we'll make that a little bit easier for them, too. Yeah, great. Right, uh, thanks, and, and your website, again, is troutandfeathers.com? Or troutandfeathers. You just troutandfeather. Yeah, yeah. Troutandfeather.com. Yeah, okay, good. Um, so we, got, uh, we have some questions about traveling itself. Uh, Mike Breer, St. Louis, Missouri, wrote in, and he says, uh, Tim, I've enjoyed the Trout and Feather website for years. Thank you for the excellent content. He says, when you are traveling, how comfortable are you checking rods, reels, and flies? If you have 
the capability of carrying these items on the plane, would you prefer to do that and not risk airline losing a rod tube or your fly boxes? Or do you have concerns TSA will confiscate flies due to the nature of hooks or feathers when you try to carry through security? Well, that's a good question. And, and Mike, thank you, by the way. I, I really appreciate the kind words. Um, to me, that's he's kind of you know hit one of the the trickiest questions whenever it comes to travel and airlines because number one, if I could check as many things as possible, I would. Um, the bag that I like to to use, and is it okay if I give a specific bag out there too? Oh sure, yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. I'm not endorsed by this or anything. Uh, it's called the Orvis Safe Passage Carry It All. Um, there's two sizes. I think it's like a, a small and a large. I prefer the large because it carries up to an 11-foot rod if it's broken down to four pieces. And my story about this, this bag, which um, kind of looks like a, a mini suitcase, almost looks like a, rod, or a bag that you would use for kind of a, we'll say, an over and under shotgun. That's kind of the bag style that it looks like. I was fishing with um, Josh Miller. He's a member of the Fly Fishing Team USA. And he had, he had this bag that was always in the back of his his car, and it was this bag, and I really liked it, and I thought about getting one, but I wasn't so sure, and right before I took a trip, it may have been maybe my Wyoming trip, he, I asked him if I could borrow it from him. He said, sure, and I took it on a trip with me. Uh, I, I checked it. It was great. Whenever I got into the plane, I asked the first stewardess. I saw if, if, I, if she could store it for me. They put it in one of the closets. It worked out just super well. Uh, I loved it so much. I didn't give it back to Josh for like a month. In fact, I think he needed it for one of the major fly fishing events, one of his major competitions. He had to just beg me to give it back. And as soon as I gave it back to him, you know, I immediately went to Orvis and bought one because I just liked it that much. So I, that's kind of the – I really – it feels very safe. And what's nice about that bag, on the top section you can put your fly rods in. And kind of what Josh taught me, he likes to have at least one rod in a bag inside of a tube in that top section. And then he has a bunch of other bags, or a bunch of other rods inside bags in that top section. And, and having that one in the tube kind of solidifies or brings a little bit of rigidity to the top of the bag. He's never had a problem, you know, breaking rods in his bags. And I know he travels a heck of a lot more than most people, and I've never had a problem with mine either. Then on the bottom section, um, I, you have rooms for room for fly reels. Um, because I carry this on, I'll put on I'll put a spare change of clothes in that as well. Um, I'll put stuff like Gosh, I'll carry flies on at times. I'll put just kind of odds and ends, maybe a buff, a couple, maybe a spare hat, just those types of things. I'll cram as much stuff as this into this thing as possible. But now, before I kind of go on any further, you know, Mike was asking really about, you know, how comfortable am I, and more importantly, do I have concerns about with TSA? And so with rods, if you go to the TSA website, can you carry them on and check them? Absolutely. Like that's, you know, the TSA is pretty clear about that whenever at least getting it into the airport. The next question that you have is, and you have to research this, this is kind of the tricky part, just because TSA allows it in the airport doesn't mean that airline will allow it onto the flight. So there's a couple different things you have to do, and if you're flying to an exotic destination and you, you, know, you have to take multiple airlines and you're just taking some of these puddle jumpers, you have to really make sure you know, like, you know what they allow you to, to carry and what they don't. So that's one of the things that you really have to do the research. The other area that he talked about was the notion of flies. And this is something that I think his question, you know, really, what about with the hooks? What about feathers? How comfortable are you carrying them through security? I'll try to bring one fly box every time that I'm going to carry on just because I, I want to know that, I've had, that, that I have it there. Um, through all my years of travel, there was one set of bags that was lost 
uh, it was found about a week after my trip. In all the other situations, everything's always made it with me every time. So maybe I've been very, you know, more fortunate than others, but I still like to have just one fly box that's loaded with about, I don't know, 50 flies, somewhere around there. Just so I know, if they confiscate that, I'm going to be sick. There's no question about it. But I still, you know, I still have all my other backups that, you know, I've checked versus, you know, carrying these ones on. I hope I've been saying, I think I've been using the right terminology because this Orvis Safe Passage, I do carry that one on. I don't check that one. I hope I said that yeah. correctly. I prefer, to carry, I prefer to carry it on if I can. Now, the bigger question is what about hooks? Because if you go to the TSA website, it says very clearly that if it's a large fish hook, it should be wrapped, it should be packed in your checked luggage. Uh, all, you know, all high-value objects should as well, but they do say that, you know, those smaller ones, the smaller flies, and they mentioned small flies, can be carried on. And that's great because it clearly says that. But then the issue is at the very bottom of the TSA page, at the, you know, the very bottom of every TSA page, it says the final decision rests with the TSA officer on whether an item is allowed through the checkpoint. So when people say, you know, I've carried flies on, and you have others that say, no, the TSA told me no, it's because that, that final officer does have the ability to say yes or no. So if, I guess the short answer is I like to carry some on. You know, maybe 50 of them I'll carry on, and the rest I'll check with my luggage. Yeah, yeah. It's good to, to split stuff up, I think. Um, another thing, uh, just to share an experience that I had, uh, it was two years ago going to Belize. Uh, okay. Flying on the, the airlines, the jets and so forth was fine. I got to Belize City, and then you have to take a puddle jumper. You know, it's like 12 people on this plane. But what I didn't know is, um, you know, I checked my luggage uh, with, the, with uh, Maya Air, I think it was, and uh, I okay. figure it's all going on there. I mean, it's you're watching them loaded up and stuff, you know. It's, it's much more, <laughs> less sophisticated than the than uh, Southwest uh, Airlines or whatever. But uh, um, so I'm watching load stuff up, and then um, I get down there to Placencia, and we get off the plane, and uh, I'm missing uh, my two fishing bags. Gone. And I said, where are they? Oh, you know? No. And they said, yeah. oh, well, we, were, we had too much weight. We had to leave them behind. They'll be on the next flight. Well, guess what? Oh, I'm gosh. taking a taxi to a dock where I'm going with my guide out to an island oh, for a week. No. <laughs> so, oh, so, no. And, and the, the flight, the last flight is like at 5 o'clock or something. We can't wait. Um, and so I ended up uh, going out to the island. Uh, the guide, who's become a great friend of mine, Charlie Leslie, was able to call somebody he knew, and they got the bags, and then the next day they got the bags out to the island. But um, one thing you just a lesson learned, if you're going to transfer to a puddle jumper, Talk to the people and say, "Hey, I need all these bags on there. If they're not going, I need to know." You know, um, because um, they—they're just—they arbitrarily just leave a few behind and figure, "Oh, we'll send it to the hotel tomorrow." You know, well, <laughs> it was my rods, my everything <laughs> that I needed to fish. Yeah. So, uh, but um, anyway, yeah, lesson learned about um, transferring. Absolutely. As well. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think we answered John's question from New Jersey. Um, on carrying on, he was asking about a fish pond case, probably something okay. similar. But uh, yeah, um, and I think what you said was interesting. It's finally determined by uh, who's ever standing there, right? Which exactly. is uh, can be a little yeah. dicey. Yeah, Absolutely. I think other destinations and stuff they they're familiar with this too. You know, if you're flying to 
Belize or Iceland, you know, they, they know that fly fishers are coming in a lot. So they probably see a lot of that, too, and don't get too excited. But um, Yeah, um, yeah, I think you're right. I think they're kind of used to, you know, fly fishermen coming through and some of those, those bigger destinations. Um, so they kind of know what to look for. And it's interesting, though, because it's nice whenever your stuff's going through the scanner and the guy looks up and he says, oh, did you catch any fish on your trip? So it's nice that yeah. they kind of know, you know, what's going on. Or that could be part of their screening as well to make sure that it's a fly reel and they want to double check that you were fly fishing and you know what, what it is. So I'm, who, who knows? The, I guess the only other thing, that I'll, the only other piece that I'll bring in with this, I like to, you know, as I mentioned, I try to carry on as much as I can, but I tend to also check a bag. And the way that I've kind of been traveling recently, especially in the United States, and this, this worked over in Iceland as well, the bag that I check is this big Yeti bag. It's called a, I think they pronounce it a Pango 100 duffel. It looks, it looks super cool. It's like waterproof. It's almost this rubbery material. Um, but I jam everything into this thing. You know, I bring all my fly tying stuff, and I, I check all that inside that bag. It, you know, I try to keep it under 50 pounds or 40 pounds, depending on the airline. And, you know, I, I always surprise myself because I think I'm going to go over, and it, it always makes it. So I'm always really, you know, happy about that. So that's the one that I, I prefer to check. And then I carry on this, that Orvis Safe Passage. So that's kind of considered my carry-on. Then I also, you know, as my personal item, I, I wear a Patagonia, I think it's called their Black Hole 25-liter backpack. So that's considered, you know, my personal item. So those are using those three bags, I've really been able to travel and carry a ton of stuff. So for people who are thinking, geez, I need to bring as much as possible, for me, those three bags have really done it, and that's with just checking one. Yeah, yeah. We got a question, Tim, that came in here uh, from Tim in Oregon. <laughs> so um, he, he says, have you ever had a problem with actual fly line on the reel going through TSA? Because I've heard a story that the reel was okay, but not the fly line. That's a new one. I haven't heard that. You, you know what? I've heard that, too. Um, I've never had anyone tell me it was specifically them. And maybe if it was Tim, if he could maybe, you know, email again while the show's going on to tell us that. But, no, I've every single one I've carried through. I've brought sink tips, um, floating fly lines, the Euronymph stuff, and I've never had a problem with any of those. So, but I've heard that story. So whatever story he's heard, I've heard the same thing, that they had to take the fly line off, they had to throw it away, and that would just be, you know, kind of devastating depending on where you're going yeah. as well. But I've never talked to anyone that happened, that specifically happened to. It's just been people that have heard it from, you know, word of mouth. So yeah. if it's happened, yeah. I haven't heard of it. And I don't know how they would have justified that, but no, in my mind, no, I haven't heard that. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, we had a couple more questions come in here, so let me try to catch up with some of these. Mm -hmm. uh, Ralph in uh, Mesa says, uh, do you have tackle rods, reels, and flies at the ready for any spur-of-the-moment trip? Yes. I'm, I don't know if he wants me to get, to, get into specifics, but... In that bag, that Orvis Safe Passage, I could go into my garage right now. If, you know, a friend of mine called and said, you know, Tim, you know, this weekend, here's what we're doing. In that bag, I always have a Euronymph rod ready to go. So it's, I have it's a 10-foot 6-weight, or I'm sorry, 10-foot 6-inch 3-weight um, that I consider my Euronymph rod. You know, it's ready to go. I have a 9-foot 5-weight in there. Um, I have a 9-foot 6-weight with a little softer tip that uh, I use for streamer fishing. And I have a 9-foot 8-weight. Um, that I use for that I can use for saltwater and you know things of that nature, and then I have a nine foot ten weight as well. So those rods are kind of always in there. 
Now, if I'm just primarily doing trout fishing all summer long, then I'm going to have maybe three or four trout rods ready to go, maybe a shorter rod, something like that. But those kind, of, those sticks are they pretty much reside in there. There's a matching reel for each of them. Um, some of the reels have spare spools on. Maybe my nine foot eight weight. I have a floating line. I have a sink tip, and then I have a full sinking line. So I, you know, I have one reel and multiple spools for it. But yeah, I mean, not that. And trust me, to, to go back to what Ralph asked. That doesn't happen very often where somebody says, are you ready to go tomorrow? But for the Iceland trip this summer, it was about maybe two or three weeks out. Um, that's my buddy Rob Janino called. He, he asked, he's like, Tim, hey, I'm thinking about doing Iceland. You know, it's a real quick turnaround. Are you able to do this? And, you know, I, I made sure my passport was good. I talked to my wife. She was like, yeah, do it. I mean, it's Iceland. How could you say no to that? And, you know, it just felt like three weeks later we were up in the air and on our way over there. So those, those quick turnarounds can happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, good. Um, and let's see here. And this kind of will, well, let's take a quick break, and then I'll come back to some of these questions. This is going to get us uh, sure. into whole new topics here. So uh, we'll be right back. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market, as well as unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I've ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kick boats, I'm convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. Again, that's BigSkyInflatables.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Tim Camisa about traveling and fly fishing. So if you'd like to ask Tim a question, just go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. So, Tim, uh, we've got a couple more questions in here, um, and it's kind of going to merge us into, uh, I think we're going to end up crossing over a bunch of different topics here, but uh, okay. uh, one question is, uh, do you tie much on your trips or, or try to tie ahead? I have found that a few of the shops close to some of the rivers prefer to sell their special flies instead of tying materials. <laughs> this is from Tim in Oregon again. Okay. That's a great question. Um, Yes to both questions. I, I do like to tie beforehand. I can tell you just from experience over the years, a decade ago, if I knew I was taking a trip, we'll just say to maybe Montana, maybe we'll just say the Madison River, and I knew it was going to be in August, I would just tie like crazy for maybe a year ahead of time or six months ahead of time, almost to the point where I would be negligent in tying for you know my local waterways because I just wanted to get so ready for the Madison River. And then what I realized, I would get to those locations, and I would kind of refer back to some of my confidence flies or my confidence patterns. And you know, going back to we're talking about trout here, I don't want to say trout are trout and, and they eat. But in general, trout are fish, and they have to feed. And there are times when you want those really specific and those niche patterns, and it's good to have some of them. But I know I've come back from some of these trips, and I've opened up boxes that I tied just for that trip, and I've, I've used zero of those flies. So I kind of caution people ahead of time. It's, it's good to have flies ready to go, but not so many that you feel like you, you kind of have an excess of them. Because 
and now this is kind of what he alluded to, whenever you get to those locations, there is the chance of you getting there, and there's some fly that you didn't know about, and the fly shop has it. And, if, and, and let's first say this. I'm a fly tire, but if I get on a trip and, and I'm there and everyone's catching it on, on, you know, fish on X fly, and the shop is selling X fly, I'm going to buy a half a dozen of X fly because, you know, that's also saving me time. So I'm going to look at it from that, you know, that perspective. But as a fly tire as well, I like to bring a time bag with me. And I always have that loaded into um, that, that Yeti Panga that I talked about. So I bring this bag with me on every trip. I think I shared the, the bag. It's a smaller duffel bag. And would you like me to go through kind of some of the stuff that I always have ready with me, Tom, or Roger? Sure. Yeah, sure, go ahead. Sure. Well, in my, in my bag, I like to bring a, a vise and a tool set. Um, the travel vise that I use, it's from a, an Italian company called Stonfo. And it's a real small travel vise. Uh, it's really nice because it, it basically folds up to the size of a large cell phone. So that's a great vise to have. I also know many people that use the Renzetti Traveler. It's a really lightweight vise. Um, I prefer to have a pedestal. I know so many people love the C-clamp because it's a little more stable, which it definitely is. But you know, sometimes, depending on where you are, I can, I tend to, I'm able to find a flat surface. I'm not always able to find something that I can kind of screw the C-clamp onto. So I kind of prefer to have the pedestal base with that. Uh, I like having a tool set um, just because it, you know you have all of your tools organized and ready to go. Whenever it comes to tying threads, kind of a tip to tires out there, I've really started to use a lot of the GSP threads in the last couple of years. Um, probably my favorite one is from a company called Semperfly. They're known really big time in, in Europe, and they have this this thread. It's called Nano Silk, and it's the size that I prefer is 18 knot. So it's extremely slender, but it's GSP, which stands for gel spun. And because of that, it's very, very tough to, to break, very tough to tear. In fact, whenever you're using your scissors, I recommend, you know, don't use your really fine ones by the tips. You know, cut, you know, further in your scissors. And what's nice about using this GSP thread with 18-odd, I just bring two colors, just black and white. And I can pretty much tie any fly that I want from midges the whole way to streamers, and I'm talking articulated streamers with this thread, and I have no problem whatsoever. Then from there, within my, you know, my bag, I have, you know, materials that I'll use to tie some confidence flies. And by confidence flies, I'm talking about maybe a handful of flies that have just worked for me all around the world. We can kind of get into the notion of, you know, some of those flies, but we're talking just a handful of dry flies, some Euronymphs, some streamers, and and a few emergers, so I have the materials ready to tie those, and I keep all the materials in just these kind of like a gallon-sized Ziploc bag. So for all my dry flies, all that stuff for those three or four flies, the materials, maybe in smaller quantity, are all in one kind of Ziploc bag. So I, I can pull out, a, hey, if, if, I, if they're taking caddis and I want to tie a bunch of X caddises, I know all, that, all the materials are going to be in that one bag for them, so I can pull out those bags. Then I'll also have a couple other baggies that relate to maybe local patterns. And whenever I say local patterns, sometimes it may not be a specific pattern, but it could be a specific color that fish are just known to eat there. I know whenever I fished Michigan a lot, um, it seemed like orange was just a really special color to have built into your flies in Michigan. So maybe I would have just more orange dubbings or more orange feathers with me. And I'll also have baggies that may relate to a specific hatch. If I travel somewhere and maybe I know there's going to be, we'll go back to Michigan, that hex hatch is going to go I'm going to have, you know, more materials that are related to larger flies and related specifically to the hexagenia. So I'll be ready to tie those. I'll have hooks ready for those as well. So I kind of look at my tying bag as I have my bread and butter, but I also have some stuff in there that, that I'm ready for 
you know, some possibilities related to local. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's, it's interesting. Well, we've got some other questions here I want to throw in here because we can kind of mix all this sure. together. Um, uh, John Nash, this is off, coming off the Internet too, Harrisville, Pennsylvania, says, when preparing your fly box for a destination trip, do you take mostly flies you fish locally, your confidence flies, which you're just talking about, uh, or do you tend yeah. to bring mostly bugs that supposedly work well in the area you are traveling to? So hypothetically, if I was going to go to Iceland, how much of my fly box would be flies that I would normally fish versus Iceland-specific flies? Hmm, good question. And yeah. um, I believe I know, I, I think I know Joe. Did you say it was Joe? Joe Nash, Harrisville, Pennsylvania. Yeah, I, I know Joe, and Joe is actually going to Iceland with us this summer. So good question, Joe. He's trying to, <laughs> he's trying to find out what's in my box. I see what he's doing. It's really, yeah. it's really sneaky, Roger. Um, yeah, to answer yeah. Joe's question, probably I'm going to say around 75 to 80% of my fly boxes are still loaded with local patterns. So it's only about you know 25, 20% that I'll tie those Icelandic patterns. I tied a bunch of Icelandic patterns last year, and by a bunch I'm talking maybe four or five dozen, and I used like four or five flies while I was there. And I, I did use some of the guide flies um, while over there, but for the most part I was just referring back to some of my the bread and butter stuff that I use in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've got another question here, and if uh, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna give this one an answer myself after you do because yeah, I yeah, just did sure. just so um, uh, <laughs> Phil Riley in, in High Springs I don't know where High Springs is but uh, he says Tim I'm a public school teacher in Florida and okay so in Florida <laughs> I spend my mm -hmm, summers okay. venturing north for trout driving and camping I would like to do a road trip starting in North Georgia and working my way up to Canada chasing cold water I've been listening closely mm -hmm. to your tips do you have any suggestions or resources for planning a long duration road trip Ooh, that's a really good one. Um, I, first of all, I'm not going to say, I don't want to say yes or no straight out the bat because I've never done something where I've kind of, you know, plotted my way there. But I think that if, if I was looking at that, I'd probably grab maps. I'd probably get maps spread out all over the place and at least try to find some of the big-name waters because um, I'd love to say if, if you're going to be doing that, maybe maybe he's going to come past South Holston. And, you know, he's probably going to want to fish that. It's in the summertime. It's going to be really cold water. But then the other kind of sneaky tip that I would give him, the South Holston and you know a lot of rivers like that, we're talking like the Delaware River in New York, on a lot of the major tailwaters, they offer just excellent fly fishing opportunities all summer long. So that's great that hopefully he's going to plan his way you know, around a lot of those tailwaters. So that's kind of the first tip I would give him. But then the second tip is everybody knows about those tailwaters in July. It used to be kind of almost a secret that I could go to the, the upper Delaware River in the middle of July and we would almost have that river to ourselves. But now, because so many people realize just how cold the water is and how that's one of the few games that's left in town, it, it really gets crowded. But the perk of that is if you're catching water temperatures correctly, you don't have to just fish there because those rivers attract so many people, and there are lots of other waterways in that area, maybe in a 20-mile radius from those major rivers that still have cold water as well. So I guess the tip I would give him is, Try to select some of those major destinations that you know will have cold water opportunities, but don't just limit yourself to just those waterways. Try to look at some of their tributaries or some of the other waterways around them. For instance, on the South Holston, that's kind of, I don't want to say the famous waterway, but that's really the, the known river whenever you're talking about Tennessee. But right next to it is another tailwater that's called the Watauga, which can be almost as good or sometimes better than the South Holston. So I would kind of 
point him in that direction to do some additional research and just call some of those shops but ask that question, if I'm not fishing X River, what's another one in the area that you'd recommend me kind of trying out that wouldn't have a, a large of a crowd? Yeah, that's a good idea. Well, uh, Phil, my take on this is uh, my buddy and I that I've been fishing, fly fishing with since junior high school, took a trip this uh, September. We went from Colorado, Boulder area, up to uh, Wyoming, fished the North Platte, uh, went to fish the Bighorn in Montana, drove across, fished the Madison, uh, went into the park in Yellowstone, fished the fire hole in the Madison, and then uh, came back down through uh, southern Wyoming. But to plan that trip, I did just, just what Tim said. I picked out the major fisheries we wanted to hit. We gave them each a couple of days. And then I went into books and onto websites to look at the hatch charts for that time of year. And I put it all into a spreadsheet to see which flies each area was recommending. And then I kind of cross-referenced that. And there was a lot of duplication. It's kind of like what you said, Tim. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, yeah. well, they're doing blue wing olives at that. You know, okay, well then they're doing that also on the Madison on the Bighorn. You know, uh, and then they're doing caddis. <laughs> yeah. So, so you find out that yeah, there's some specific things in certain areas, but a lot of there was overlap, and they were, you know, just the standard imitations. Uh, the one thing that was a bit different is when we were in the park, they said we could expect maybe hitting this White Miller hatch. Well, that really is only happening there. <laughs> so we had to, you know, throw white millers in there just in case uh, we hit that hatch. But um, but that's the way I did it, and it worked out pretty good. That way I didn't have to buy all the flies for each area because there was a lot of duplication, yeah. and it worked out well. You going south to north kind of complicates things as far as weather. We were kind of in the same area, so yeah, the time yeah. of year and weather was, was very similar. But... Uh, but anyway, that's the way I did it, so it worked out pretty good. So, um, oh, cool. well, let's um, uh, talk. Uh, we had a, Dino. He said, uh, how, "How important is the local prey predator's behavior and selecting methods to try their tactics that are agnostic to most areas that are good starting points when fishing new waters?" Okay. Um, yeah, I guess the biggest tip that I'll that I'll give Dino is, I definitely think that. Having knowledge of local prey is really, that's really essential. And I, I kind of think about it whenever, and, and you and I have talked a lot about the North Platte. You know, whenever you, you think about the North Platte, two of their major resources in terms of food for, for fish, they have, you know, just absolutely tons of midges. Then they also have a lot of leeches in that waterway. Versus in Pennsylvania, maybe we have a ton of crayfish. So I think kind of knowing that, it, it can kind of dictate the types of, we'll say larger and smaller flies, especially that you're, you're carrying. As a fly tire, whenever I think about you know, streamers, maybe if I'm fishing Pennsylvania and, and there's a, a fly that I like to, to tie, I have a YouTube video of it, it's called the EP articulated streamer. And it's kind of a, a, just a generic articulated streamer that I tie. But I like to kind of vary the, the head on those. And you have you know, these heads by, I think the company's called Flymen Fish Company, and they have all these different kind of you know, variate, variations of heads where they have some that when they, you put them over the eye, they sit very wide, so it looks like a crayfish head, versus they have other ones that you slide it over the eye, and it looks like a baitfish head. And then they have other ones that are just a little plastic piece that goes over the eye, and it basically just looks like a couple eyes, and that's it. It's very slender. So knowing, you know, the types of, you know, I guess prey that are in the waterway really can kind of dictate those types of, you know, insects that you're going to bring. So, yeah, I think, I think his question brings up a good, good point, but then now he's asking, 
are there good starting points when you're you're doing that in, in good tactics? And it's I'm going to say it's going to relate back to the, this prey that at the end of the day we're still fishing for trout. So don't yeah. be afraid to if you get into these spots and, and we get into locations, and I think we'll probably get into that and we'll talk a little bit if we have time about you know reading water and, and making some you know connections that you've had on your local waterways. But that's going to be kind of that starting point that you're going to say, well, if I've fished streamers in the past, how have I had success fishing streamers? And at least start off by using tactics that you've had success with. So I, I really I really try my best to build on prior success and kind of go from there. So even if they say, well, in, on this river, the only way the fish eat is, is this way. And, and that's what we, I've been told on certain rivers. And, and, you know, I've been told, hey, you have to fish size 24s on this river. The fish don't eat anything else. And I'm like, ah, oh, geez, like size 24 is really small. And then I start urinymphing a size, you know, 16. And next thing you know, you have a half dozen fish that weren't supposed to eat a size 16, yet they did. So I don't want to tell people, you know, you have to completely – just dictate to everything based on local knowledge because there's, that's without a doubt it's a critical point, but don't just completely bow down to that or else I think you're going to miss some other fishing opportunities. So you do take what you already know and then try to apply it to the situation. Like you, were, you brought up reading water. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit. So, you know, if you fished uh, a run in, in Pennsylvania and the run looks similar in Wyoming, uh, some of the same techniques might work, right? Absolutely. Yeah, there's there's no question about it that and let's kind of go back to something we started with at the beginning of the of this show and this is the time of the year that I'm fishing because right. if we talk about Pennsylvania, you know, right now if you said, "Hey Tim, I'm flying to Pennsylvania, let's go fishing." And they say, "Great, we're going to go to central Pennsylvania. We're probably going to go to a spring creek because we know that the temperature is a little bit more consistent year-round, but we're not going to fish the same spots that I would bring you if we were fishing in the spring versus the summer versus the fall. You know, right now it's winter, so we're probably going to find water in that, you know, two- to three-foot depth that's kind of moving a little bit slower than the main current, so we're looking for seams that are off the main current and around two- to three-foot of water. So that's what we're looking for now because those fish are a little bit more stagnant, but they still want to be relatively close to that versus if we're fishing in, you know, the middle of the summer. Maybe it's, you know, it's very warm out that time of the year, and we're fishing a freestone river, and we're thinking, geez, like those fish are probably going to look for cooler areas and maybe more shade. So we're going to watch where the, the sun's falling on the water. and We're going to kind of, you know, look for those types of locations that we think fish would really be more in tune with in July and August versus in, you know, January and February. So, yeah, go, going back to that question, I'm absolutely going to be applying, you know, some of the some of the, the tips and some of the techniques that I've learned on my local waters whenever I travel these these new locations, without a doubt, especially locations that I don't know anything about. Now, when you start fishing and you're not having immediate success there, absolutely you have to change the game. I mean, if you're fortunate enough to have a guide or to see other individuals on the waterway, you know, by all means, ask them what's going on or, or at least take note of where they're fishing and, and at least start to see, all right, are they fishing? And whenever I take note, I, I kind of say to myself, are they fishing in a run? Are they fishing at the top of the run? Are they fishing where the run drops into the pool? Are they fishing the sides of the pool? Are they fishing the tail of the pool? Are they fishing really froggy water? And then once you've at least identified the water types and those different types of water that either you see people fishing or you yourself have fished through, then it's now time to say, all right, if I'm still not having success, let's kind of change the game a little bit and change the types of patterns that I'm throwing. Maybe I am, I've been throwing something like a, a generic hair's ear or a waltz worm, and I'm not having a lot of luck. But maybe that's 
more of a caddis imitation. So maybe there's more mayflies in that waterway. So let's go down that pathway instead. Or when you're really not having success, don't be afraid to throw some of those flies that I don't want to call them junk flies because they're not, but we're talking flies like the mop flies or a squirmy wormy <laughs> or even an say, egg yeah. pattern. <laughs> yeah, or, or even an egg pattern. I mean, if, if I probably would have met my, you know, if I could go back 25 years, I could just imagine the younger me saying, like, Tim, are you, are you actually on Ask About Fly Fishing telling people to fish, you know, a squirmy wormy? But at the end <laughs> of the day, when, when, when you're traveling, you know, you're putting in hundreds, if not thousands of dollars to take this trip. You want to also have a great experience out of it. And I, and I know some people that are perfectly content to go somewhere and just say, all I'm going to do is dry fly and nothing else. And that's great. But, you know, whenever I'm going on these trips, I want to have success too, and I, I want to make it an, an enjoyable trip. So I am absolutely not opposed to, to doing those types of things. And then I'll kind of throw this out to you, and I'm, you may have learned this, you know, on the North Platte. When we were fishing there, we realized that there's all kinds of different broods of these rainbows. And all these rainbows, whenever they spawn, they spawn at different times of the spring. So there's not just one week or a two-week period where all the rainbows spawn on the North Platte. They spawn for over, you know, a four- to eight-week period, and there's all these different rainbows that will take up those spawning posts, which are telling you that there's constantly eggs in the water in the spring on the North Platte. So if you would have saw me fishing there, did I fish an egg while I was on that waterway 100% because I knew there were a ton of eggs in that water at the time of the year when we were there in April. Yeah, yeah. Um, Bob in Columbia, um, Maryland, he, he wants to know if there's any one key method and or fly that you found that seems to work everywhere. Ooh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> the method that I've, I've really turned to in the last few years this goes back to, to fishing with Josh Miller. I'm very fortunate because he's a he's an exceptional fisherman. He's a guide in central Pennsylvania as well. I, I think I mentioned he's on our national fly fishing team, and he's exceptional. I just consider him one of the you know the top anglers in the country, if not the world. And he has kind of brought me down this rabbit hole of euro nymphing. So if, if I would say there's one method for trout that I've really just excelled with over the years, it's been euro nymphing. And I, whenever I say I saw it like an immediate occurrence, just immediate success with it. It just went from, and I, I just got married around, you know, six, around six years ago. And, you know, whenever I came back from fishing, I would, you know, tell my wife I caught, you know, X amount of fish, and it was a good day, and, and here's what happened this day. And then the next year, after I learned a euronym, I was telling her my numbers. Not, not specific. I don't have a counter or anything like that, but I was just giving her approximate numbers. And after like the third or fourth time, she looked at me and she said, Tim, are, are you, like, lying to me or something? Because I feel like your numbers are, like, double what they were last year. And sure. they really were because it was such an effective method. Whenever he's asking for specific flies, um, I can throw out a couple that I've had, you know, a lot of success with Success with whenever it comes to Euro nymphing and down that range. But whenever I say kind of Euro style, um, I love to fish dry flies with this. There are specialized leaders with it. Um, I'll even throw articulated streamers on, a, on my Euro rig. So on this three-weight, I mean, I've really fished around the world with a three-weight and had a lot of success with it. Um, I've felt limited in a couple of situations, especially whenever it's very windy. That would be a situation, you know, I got to Iceland really excited to do some Euronymphing, and the first couple of days there we had, you know, 20 to 30-mile-an-hour winds, and that just immediately I knew, you know, I'm not going to play the game where I'm going to fish a dry dropper or a strike indicator with it. I'm just going to put that Euronymph rod away and, you know, just throw a five- or six-weight instead. Um, so there are times that, that, that I do feel limited, but overall, 
that's kind of the method. And you know, that's I think you have a, a number of shows where you've talked about you know those methods with some really incredible guests. Oh, yeah. So I would kind of refer your yeah I would refer the listeners to that for specifics. Some of the flies that I've I've really you know done well with, um, and I'll just I'll just throw out a half a dozen. Whenever I'm thinking about nymphs, um, there's a fly that I tie called the waltzworm blowtorch. Um, that one's really done well for me all around the country. You know, I, I use that a lot in, in Iceland. That was a great one. Uh, the Frenchie is a generic. It's a pheasant tail style pattern that has worked really well for me. Um, the hot spot color, I like orange and purple, and I use this really ugly shade of green. So I, I, those are kind of three of the Frenchies that I use. The blueing olive nymph that has done just exceptional for me in the last decade is called the WD-40. I have a video on that one as well. Um, it's a really simple tie. Uh, size 18 to size 20 scud hook. I use that as a dropper. I've used it as a point fly. Uh, I can't tell you how many fish I've caught on that fly over the years. It's just been a really great one for me. And then, uh, then another nymph is called a pteridagon. It's a very slender-bodied nymph that I, you would cover with a, like a UV resin. Um, it's meant to really sink in a hurry. So whenever I come to some fast water situations and I'm still using smaller nymphs, I'll use something like that. Or I'll go to something heavier like a, a past rubber leg. There's a great fly. Or if I want a really slender stonefly stone style fly, uh, there's one that Josh Miller tied on my channel called the Beachbody Stonefly, and it's another just kind of killer. Um, whenever I jump to emergers, I love to use like clink hammer hooks um, for shuttlecock style flies. So I, if, if I could use basically a fly with CDC on it, that's going to be kind of a go-to emerger, real slender body, maybe some type of a trailing post or a trailing shuck made out of like a Zelon or Antron style fiber. And then for, you know, for the, the true dry fly, uh, for caddis imitations, an X caddis is one that has just caught fish from everywhere. You know, anytime fish are, you know, eating, I, I tend to always throw that first, even if there's not caddis on the water. It's been, you know, just a really successful fly for me. And then um, I also almost always carry terrestrials with me, ant patterns and beetle patterns. I feel like fish, trout especially, will, will eat ants year-round, even though they're not on the water year-round. So I'm, I'm always, you know, I'll, I'll always throw an ant pattern or even a Griffith snap. That's another smaller fly that I just like to always have in my box. And then for streamers, I think I mentioned that the EP articulated streamer, it's another one that it's just a generic articulated streamer, but, you know, I've, I've caught a, a number of really large trout on that, on that fly, and it's just one of those confidence flies for me too. Yeah, <laughs> that was quite the laundry list, but you know what? Yeah, a whole he bunch asked of those. For one. I'm sorry. Yeah, he <laughs> asked for one. That's, so no, there's not one. I, I, I can't, whenever people ask me, what's the, if you could fish with one fly for the rest of your life, what would it be? And I just ignore them. I'm like, you, that's not realistic. No, we can't I know. do that. It's almost asked every show we do, but uh, uh, and it's surprising yeah. how many duplications there are, like uh, parachute atoms, pheasant tail. Uh, yeah. You yeah. know. Uh, you know. I mean. The, the hair's ear, the, the ones that have been catching fish for 100 years or something, you know, they always Absolutely. show up. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What, um, you know, we had talked uh, a little bit on the on the phone about um, materials and, and tying and so forth because um, you had said that uh, you were, you know, you were excited about a lot of the synthetic materials coming on the market. So I wanted to ask you what you thought about uh, uh, the synthetics and, and how you're using them or... Or you know, and do you think they're they're replacing in many cases uh, natural materials? What, what are your what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that that's an awesome question. I know you and I talked a little bit about this. Yeah. I love natural materials. There's no question. 
Um, my great uncle John, he's about to turn 90 years old. He's one of my, you know, absolute major mentors in life when it comes to all things, but especially fly tying and fly fishing. And to him, he he really just really shies away from synthetics. So my early fly tying experiences, it was really just all natural materials, as, as many as possible. And then I've slowly just kind of gone down that synthetic realm over the last, you know, decade or 15 years, and I've kind of jumped a little bit more all in recently. I think what's kind of drawn me a little bit more to synthetics, I, I don't like synthetics from the notion of I don't want to tie something onto my hook that looks exactly like a mayfly. You know, there, there are some, some people that want just the absolute specific imitation that has the lifelike legs and all of that stuff because I've kind of noticed whenever I, I use those types of materials, they're very rigid. And whenever I think about fish, I feel that, you know, fish, whenever they, they take this fly or they, they inhale this, they want to kind of get some feedback instantaneously that it could be something that they would eat. Because fish, that, that's what trout are constantly doing. They're just trying food over and over and over again, which is why I think patterns like that squirmy wormy have so much success. Because when a trout, you know, when they, when they take that, it has a lot of give to it. It's squishy. It kind of probably reminds them of something they've eaten in the past, probably a worm, versus whenever you, you know, you're sending something down like the Pterodagon, which is very rigid. So whenever I think about using materials for the Pterodagon, absolutely I'm going to go down that synthetic pathway because I know I'm fishing a Pterodagon in a situation that's really fast water where the fish just have a split second to say eat or don't eat. And if they eat, I'm going to be right on them versus if you're fishing a really deep pool, you, you don't, you have, you know, the fish have so much more time and they kind of have the advantage there. Now, when we get to the notion of fly tying, I don't know about you, Roger, but I think we live in this time right now where I just feel like we have so many just wonderful things, so many awesome things going on in the world of fly tying that even 10 years ago we didn't have. Whenever it comes to, and we'll go down some the natural path, hackle right now is just absolutely incredible and and incredible. whenever i go yeah. into fly shops and, the, and you go to fly fishing shows and you see some of the hackle that's being produced by a number of companies it's it's exceptional i mean you can buy one saddle that will probably last me for the next three lifetimes and and they're good saddles it's not like this is you know a random saddle and they can tie specifically for what you want if you want a saddle just to tie size 18 parachute atoms you can buy a saddle that's almost that specialized today which is just absolutely incredible. So I think whenever I look at certain natural materials, we really live in a great age for it. But then I also believe that because there's a kind of more of a push for synthetics, a lot of the naturals, I don't want to say are being forgotten, but it's a lot of questions that I get will say through my website is, how do I go about selecting, you know, maybe deer hair for comparadons or for an X caddis? Because it's so easy to kind of just purchase a synthetic online, purchase one at a shop, and you know it's probably going to be very consistent, that you, you can get that same material pretty much all around the country, and it's going to look almost exactly the same. Versus if I walk into a fly shop in Pennsylvania compared to California or Oregon, and I buy a piece of deer or elk hair, they're going to be really just drastically different, and I have to know exactly what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So from that perspective, I think for new tires that are getting into, getting into this game, it's great for them to be able to just you know, buy a synthetic, they can use it right out of the package, and they know it's going to look like exactly something they just saw being tied on YouTube. So that's a huge benefit to a lot of people. So I, I kind of look at, like, a lot of synthetics today, well, I call them, like, gateway drugs into fly tying, but that's kind of my, my perspective on it because 
they're very easy to use. I mean, there's some new quill body materials that I'm using right now um, that are a synthetic quill body, which I can't even imagine it, but they have these, they're really fine, and on one side of the quill, if you want to call it a quill, it's basically plastic, it even has adhesive. So once you tie it in and you start to wind this, you know, up, your, up the hook, it's sticking to the hook or it's sticking to your thread. And you don't have, I mean, this isn't like a quill body that you have to worry about it breaking or tearing and, you know, starting all over again. This thing's like stuck instantly there. So by the time you, you get it up to the, the hackle or to the thorax and you tie it off, I mean, you know it's locked in place. I mean, you, can, you don't have to worry about, you know, counter-ribbing it with thread or wire or something along those lines. So that's, a, that's another benefit. And I guess the third is the notion that a lot of feathers that we've just kind of come to expect to be able to use are starting to get banned in various places around the world. And that's making it really difficult for people who sell flies and for people who tie flies, especially those who, who do this professionally for a, as part of their livelihood. Because in some instances, finding materials such as even peacock curl is becoming very difficult or you know, it could be taxed really heavily to get it into your country. And now knowing that, it's forcing a lot of fly tying companies to say, all right, if we, if we can't have peacock curl, what can we use as a synthetic in place of it? So it's also kind of causing companies to look down different pathways to say, what's something that you know, fly tires and fly fishermen will have success with that we can market to them? Yeah, yeah the peacock curl is one that just recently uh, went on the, um, the, the CITES list. Because, and I don't know, I think they're still trying to sort it out because I was talking to uh, the, the people in the government about this stuff. And uh, they said someplace in Pakistan um, there's an endangered peacock species. So they went and put the lock on all the peacock. So uh, it's, oh, it's not a problem moving around within the U.S., but as soon as you start crossing borders from one country to another, then the peacock is going to raise a red flag unless you have a special CITES uh, permit okay. to transport that. So, yeah, and it just made me think there's so many cool synthetic peacock um, material out there that why couldn't you tie a copper john with synthetic peacock or, uh, you know, <laughs> any of the patterns that are using that? Yeah. Um, uh, why couldn't you? You know, would they work the same? I don't know the fish that know the difference, but uh, we may be forced into that, that's for sure. Um, sure. We did get a question. Um, uh, because we're running, wow, we were pretty much out of time. But I'll, I'll finish up with this one. <laughs> um, uh, well, Rob Giannino in Boston asked about mm. improving euro-nymphing skills. Rob, I'm going to suggest you search our archive um, on askaboutflyfishing.com for euro-nymphing, contact nymphing, Spanish nymphing, you know, uh, Czech, uh, Polish nymphing. And I've done a bunch of shows on that. So you get a lot of information and go listen to that. But Tim Kay in uh, Oregon uh, asks, uh, do you keep a journal of your days on your trips? I have found that useful. So I know you'd like to answer this one. <laughs> yeah, I would. Thanks. And you said that's Tim. Thanks, Tim. That's a, that's a great question. And the short answer is yes, I do. But the, the first major trip that I took, I spent a month in Montana. And I was younger. I think I was in my, my mid to late teens. And my, prior to the trip, my mom bought me this really nice, like, leather-bound journal for the trip. And, and I wrote in it every day, and, you know, I talked about the experience while I was in Montana for that month. And it was a really great journal, and then I never looked at it again for about five years. And then, you know, I saw somewhere maybe to have a fishing journal. So I started another one, and I used it, you know, occasionally, sporadically at best, I guess I can say. But the issue that I just kept having was I had these journals, but I just never referred back to them. So, uh, you know, a little bit over a decade ago, 
I, I said to myself, you know, having a journal is great, but I also needed something a little bit more utilitarian, which is something that I could refer to and I could use as a resource. So I just kind of kept thinking to myself, what's something easy that I can use, kind of like the notes on my iPhone? And I started just a generic Excel page, just a, a very you know simple spreadsheet. And at the bottom of Excel, you can have different pages. So maybe I have a whole page that's just Pennsylvania trout. And I have another page that's maybe Montana. And I have a, another page that could be Iceland. And, and you could, kind of goes on from there. So for the, we'll say one page for Pennsylvania, I have this kind of grouping columns. And I don't have it pulled up in front of me, but just to kind of talk through that, maybe the first column will be date. And then the next one will be the waterway that I fished, maybe the water temperature, what was the weather for that day, what were some of the successful flies that I used, um, maybe what was something that happened that day that I kind of remember still that I wanted to just talk about. I don't get into a lot of the, the typical journal stuff where there's, you know, I wouldn't say, I, fly fishing is not romanticized in this journal by any means, but what happened through that day and, and kind of the types of water that I fished, maybe if I was fishing the tails of pool that day, really skinny water, I'll mention that type of stuff in there. And kind of the, the tip that I'll tell the listeners is what was great about this, number one, I, I started building just a really incredible resource because I could refer back to it. So that was something that really helped. But kind of the more surprising thing that I, I kind of learned about it, the first year, you know, you're, you're just trying to build, you know, you're building your database. And that's really all I did with it. I was just building my database. And the second year I started adding, you know, more and more in. And I tried my best to fill this out every single time I went. And my way to kind of do that, whenever I would get on the water, I would take the temperature and I would email myself the temperature. So whenever I got home that night or the next day, I had the temperature saved, and that was kind of my reminder to, to input the temperature and add that new date in. So that was kind of my way to get it, get everything kind of started with each time. But then the, the surprising piece of this, Roger, is what I realized after the second season, it was maybe the third season of this journal, and maybe it was the third week of April, and it was a, maybe a Saturday, and I said, I'm going to go up to Neshanik Creek. It's a local creek, you know, about 30 minutes north of where I live. And I looked, and I had fished Neshanik Creek that same weekend, the last two years, and I fished the same spot the last two years, and which was good and bad. The, the good news was if I had success there, I was able to say, you know, this was great. I, you know, I caught over a dozen fish last time. I caught them on this fly. Like, I know I can go there, and I can catch another dozen fish, assuming the water's kind of, in a similar setup right now. But I kind of reflected on it, and I thought, this is turning into kind of like that movie, you know, is it Groundhog's Day, where it's just like I'm doing the same thing over and over and over. And it was because of that journal that it started pushing me to just explore new waterways throughout the state of Pennsylvania. So that was the other kind of surprising thing that I learned about, that I was kind of falling into habits where I was just kind of comfortable fishing and just having this kind of similar experiences throughout the year. And it really forced me to expand upon those. And maybe, maybe I love to, you know, go trout fishing, but I really started maybe doing more smallmouth fishing because of that journal. So without a doubt, you know, any of your listeners can email me, and I, I'd be happy to – I won't share my fishing journal with them, but I can kind of share the, the Excel spreadsheet if they'd like to see kind of what it looks like. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Well, good, good. Yeah, that's uh, – yeah, there's a lot, uh, a lot you got out of doing that, it sounds like, and uh, definitely – I'm sure improved your fishing for sure, um, but uh, well, Tim, we got to wind it up here. We're already over time by five minutes. So sorry, I got to cut it off here. But uh, uh, no, no, it's all good. Um, uh, but stick with me till the end here. We're going to do some giveaways. I'm going to have you involved. So, 
what we're going to do here in just a minute is give away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International, a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Dying Journal. And we'll also be giving away a book courtesy of Stackpole Books, stackpolebooks.com, if you want to learn more about all the books that they have. So uh, stick with us just here another minute or so, and we'll uh, start doing those giveaways here. Uh, the Bristol Bay region of southwest Alaska is home to the largest runs of wild salmon in the planet and some of the best trophy rainbow trout fishing found anywhere. The Pebble Mine still remains a threat to the region and two million acres of federal lands may also be at risk. The entire fly fishing industry is united in this epic conservation battle. Anglers from across the country are joining the fight. Be one of them. Visit SaveBristolBay.org uh, to learn more about this and how you can get involved and help out. So again, it's SaveBristolBay.org. And just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our home page in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of this show? Just click on that link and uh, leave your comments, and, and we'd really appreciate it. Now it's time to give away our prizes. Uh, the winners for the drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. And uh, if you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for the next show so you have a chance to, to win some of these great prizes we have to offer. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show to provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So uh, first up, we're going to be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. Again, that's flyfishersinternational.org. So if you don't win, uh, learn more about them. Become a member anyway. Uh, it's a great organization to support. And let me fire up the database here. And um, OK, our first, our first winner is Peter Suska, Suska in Connecticut. So Peter, congratulations. Uh, you now are a uh, member of Fly Fishers International. And so we'll uh, connect with you later on how you get started with that. And uh, next thing we'll give away is a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. And to find out, this is published by Amato Books. You can find out more about Amato Books at amatobooks.com. And they have a lot of books on fly fishing as well, as well as per periodicals like the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So check them out as well. Um, our winner for that one-year subscription is Dave Dillon in Oklahoma. Dave Dillon in Oklahoma. So congratulations, uh, Peter and Dave, on uh, on winning those uh, those prizes tonight. So now we're going to do a giveaway for Stackpole Books. Like I said, I've got a list of books that I have available to me to give away, and uh, you'll get to pick uh, the book that you like from that if you win tonight. So the way that this, this, we play this is you've got to submit your answer along with your name and location on the, in that form on our home page. So uh, first, let's enter the right answer. Uh, we'll win the chance to uh, pick one of these books from uh, the list I have. So uh, let's see here. Um, uh, I'll see if I can make this easy. We'll see how easy it is. <laughs> Tim, Tim mentioned, and, and this is a plug, but uh, hey, if there's a good product out there, then we'll talk about it. Uh, he mentioned uh, his traveling bag that he likes. What's the name, brand and name of that traveling bag for trips? So um, Tim will see, see if people were paying attention. If they were, then they wrote that <laughs> name down. So um, 
I could have asked them question. to list all the flies that you recommended. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little long, I think. So we got a little delay here, Tim, while um, because of the broadcast. So uh, and then they start typing. So uh, give it a second. Uh, you got it. And uh, um, I've got my first entry here. Uh, the answer is Orvis Safe Passage. Is that correct? Kim? That's it. It's the Orvis Safe Passage. It's the carry it all. If you want to be super specific, but it's the Orvis Safe Passage. That's correct. Well, Peter Suska won twice tonight. <laughs> so, wow. Uh, he just won. Uh, yeah, the uh, uh, he, he won the the membership to Fly Fishers International, and he just won uh, a book from Stackpole Books. So, Peter, <laughs> you were in there quick and fast and uh, correct. So you are a winner. And we got a bunch more coming in. Uh, good, good job, Phil Riley. Uh, good job, Tim Kay. Good job, Joe Nash. Uh, a bunch of people knew that one. I thought that might be a little easy, but uh, whoever types fastest yeah, first. Yeah. So Peter, um, send me in that same text box. Send me your address uh, and your phone number uh, as well, and then I will have uh, everything I need for Fly Fishers International and uh, send you the book. So. Uh, do that for me. You, I've got your name. I just need your shipping address and your phone number. I got your email address, so we're good there. So congratulations, Pete. That was quick and fast and correct, and that's what we wanted. Thanks, everybody, for listening and paying attention. Uh, I do appreciate that. Um, now, uh, Tim, I just want to thank you for being on the show. It was a pleasure, as I expected it to be, and uh, uh, you shared a lot of great information, and as soon as you get that book close to being published. We'll have to do another show and talk about your new book. So uh, looking forward to that. Absolutely. Thanks, Roger. I really appreciate you having me on. And if any of the listeners have questions about any of this stuff, you know, by all means, they are more than welcome to reach out to me, and I can expand upon that at some point. Yeah, great, great. Yeah. And uh, I will put those links to your uh, channel and your uh, website on your speaker's page here and show page so people can that are listening later on can uh, find that information as well. So good. Well, great to have you on. Everybody, um, I hope you found the archive on our website. At the top it says Podcast Archive. And uh, one thing, if you do subscribe through one of the podcasting platforms, you can't really search very well for the different shows. So I encourage you to go into our archive where you can search by keyword phrases. and. Um, uh, for instance, tonight's show that's going to be listed, uh, one of the keywords will be travel. Uh, so, uh, but you can search for Madison River. You can search for Euronymphing, contact nymphing, streamers, stripping streamers, all kinds of stuff. And find them there, and then you'll know what episode they are. We don't have everything up on the podcasting channels, but we are actively loading them up, and pretty soon we'll have over 300 shows up there for the, from the past uh, 14 years. So... Uh, so anyway, I encourage you to go check out the archive and, and look for whatever you're looking for. you probably find it. If you don't, send me an email and say, hey, do a show on this or that, and uh, I'll see if we can accommodate you. The next broadcast will be on February 19th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, and on that show we'll interview Zeke Hirsch, and our topic for the show will be fly fishing the Colorado River and its tributaries. Uh, Zeke is a well-respected and seasoned guide on the Colorado River. He wades and floats the river almost every day and knows how to fish it. Join us as Zeke takes us on a journey down the Colorado from pump house to rifle and learn how to best fish this famous river. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Stackpole Books, 
Slip Gray Key Fishing Lodge, Baja Fly Fishing, and Watermaster for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Bye.